to episode 205 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of November 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. I'm alive. <laughs> and Will. Hello. Yeah, not impaled on a tree then, Graham. No, but I'm still wet. My feet are still wet and I'm still <laughs> cold. <laughs> well, if you will go on holiday by mistake. <laughs> Let's do some discoveries then. Phelan, what is Portmaster? Yeah, this uh, brings me back to watching one of my pals use Windows XP in the early 2000s. And he had this thing that was, I don't know, application level firewall, personal firewall. Every time he wanted to do something, it would like, he'd have to allow it to go out, which I just found unbelievably annoying to watch. Zone alarm you're talking about. Mm. I don't see. I tried to look it up and I couldn't see if it was definitely zone alarm or not. And I just can't remember. It could have been. So. The concept's good, especially on Windows, where you know God knows what the thing is doing half the time. But even on Linux, yeah, maybe you want to control what's doing what. Well, the guys at Safing.io have a thing called Portmaster, which is essentially that. It's got a very nice interface. Their main selling point is to say that you know they give local value for free forever, which is quite a honourable goal. But it is a piece of software written in Go, fully open source. And I think they tack on some extra services to it. They have this thing called a SPN, which is like a, I think they call it a safing private network or something like that. Essentially, it's a VPN, but loads of different endpoints and built into this application. And you can assign various profiles to different applications. So you might want, you know, Netflix to go out via the US, say, but you might want your local bank to go through, say, for your case, through London or something like that. And it's quite smart the way it's done, and the interface is really nice on it. I didn't audit the code or anything, so I don't know how trustworthy it is. But I tried it in a VM because I wasn't going to touch it on my main machine. But I'm sure it's fine. And it uses IP tables mainly on Linux. It runs on Windows and on the Mac. I don't know about the Mac, but the Windows one has its own kernel module. And I believe they were thinking about doing that for Linux too, if IP tables doesn't work out for them. But at the moment, yeah, it's, it's IP tables. But it's quite interesting. Like, I mean, I fired up Firefox. I could see it trying to hit telemetry.firefox.org. It blocked that, went to the sites, no problem. I discovered that KD have a Hetzner server that does networkcheck.kd.org to find out if Network Manager thinks you've got a proper internet connection or not, which I thought was interesting. It's got loads of advanced features you can play around with. Like, it's got even like Prometheus metrics and stuff like that. If you want to dump all those out to your own server and stuff loads it's really well done and to be honest the interface is dead easy if you want to deny something access just tick it off and on uh, it's as simple as that does it have any sort of ad blocking built in i think kind of i could never really figure out whether because i went to google.com and i didn't see it blocking like crazy i just saw the telemetry that firefox stuff getting blocked so i couldn't categorically say whether it does or doesn't but it does have a lot of stuff for privacy built in and make sure your dns goes off from your isps you know they by default do the cloudflare stuff which you know take it or leave it whether you think that's a good idea or not but you can set your own uh change priorities but i didn't see anything about like the cookie level of stuff i just use the easy mode but there's you can dig really deep on this as well and how easy was it to install well they've got a deb just download that my package manager fired up on the KDVM, and yeah, it was just one click away. I don't know about the Mac, and I assume that was easy to have a clue. And Windows was an XE as well. I was actually going to try it Windows, but then I just 
didn't want to start my VM because it probably has about 3,000 updates and it would have been like a week <laughs> before I could have got a chance to try it. It's only 10 megabytes, this deb file, so it must be relatively lightweight. Did it bog down performance? No, and obviously this is a VM, it's a graphical VM. I have a bunch of VMs that I use for clients. If they have a VPN that they need to get out, I essentially confine them to that VM and it's nice and handy. So, you know, it's not a beast of a VM that I set up because I don't waste a whole lot of memory. I think it's about three gigs of RAM I have and it's, you know, fairly simple. It just uses one CPU. And this thing, you wouldn't even know it was there, really. I didn't notice it at all and worked really well. Well, it's definitely what I'm going to recommend to people coming from Windows who want that kind of style of firewall. I don't know if I would use it myself, but it's quite interesting when you pick up stuff where you go, yeah, maybe I didn't know that it did that. That'd be quite interesting, especially if you're using things maybe containerized more where you can't necessarily trust where it's come from. I mean, I know things like Snap or Flatpak tried to do that from the OS level, but maybe from the network level too, this can throw a bit of extra visibility on stuff. I might give it a go because um, I really like the UI. Um, it might have to coexist with Pi-hole, so I'll have to report back on how it actually works. And it's AGPL as well, which is good. So, hmm, very interesting find. Discovery, I mean. <laughs> Will, T-Shark, this sounds like Wireshark to me. It is like Wireshark but it on the command line. So you get all of the benefits of using a command line instead of a GUI. But it does have some pretty powerful command line options that make it really useful for particular tasks. I was using it to capture the, or rather process, the Bluetooth logs from an Android device with a, a Bluetooth light that I was trying to reverse engineer the protocol on. And I did some captures in Android and then imported the capture file into Wireshark. And I could see all the stuff there that I wanted, but I wanted to filter it out and I wanted to put it back out to a new file. And Wireshark sort of lets you do that. You can select certain packets and you can export those to a new file. But I wanted to only export particular parts of the packets. I didn't want the whole packet. I didn't want the protocol chatter backwards and forwards to set up certain communication standards and I didn't want the the headers of the packets that said this is a write and this is a read all I wanted was just the, the data going backwards and forwards and I looked around to try and find out how to do that in Wireshark because I assumed it must be able to do that and the answer came back that no it can't and what you should use is T-Shark so T-Shark supports the same sort of filters as Wireshark. It supports the same file types as Wireshark. And you can run it in live mode and it can listen to the network and show you in real time what's going on. But for me, the real benefit was the ability to script it with a previously captured log file and say, I want to output in JSON format or CSV format. And I only want this field and I only want these particular parts of that field. And I want you to put it out into a new file. And then I can you know, process that in my text editor or in a spreadsheet or whatever it is I wanted to do with it. And so T-Shark made that really easy. You could string together filters and specify particular fields dump it out to a new file, and then had just the data. The way that I was doing that in Wireshark previously was finding the packet I was interested, highlighting the bytes that I wanted, right-click, copy, go to across to the text document, paste, and it was taking, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds for each bit of the conversation that I was trying to copy. And this did the whole thing in seconds, so it saved me a lot of time. And did it work then? Did you reverse engineer it? I did. 
You can read all about it on um, on my GitHub page. Oh, well, if you stick a link to that in the show notes, I'll include it. That's pretty cool. I, I've never used T-Shark at all. I've done dumps to a file, to like a PCAP file, then taken it off somewhere else. But that gets a bit old. So that that yeah, I should try it out and see mm. if I can use it a bit easier. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Graham, camera controls. <laughs> yes, so like a lot of people who work from home, I spend far too much time in uh, video meetings with the webcam pointed at my face. And at this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, it gets dark and I like to work in the dark with a weird red light. It looks really weird, but my webcam can never adapt to these conditions. And so I always find, for years, I've found myself looking for a tool that can tweak the webcam settings while I'm actually in a video call. So I think it's like USB video class. There is a standard class for sending commands to most, with to all webcams that just work with Linux. And you could use some a GTK app called uh, UVC Viewer, which would fail to open up the live preview if you were already in a chat, but you could still tweak the controls. So you could do the brightness, for example, for the problem I have and the contrast. Then I discovered a command called v4l2-ctl, which was basically a set and get command for these USB video class instructions. So from the command line, I could change the brightness and the contrast. And it would also expose things like exposure and backlight compensation, a little bit more deeper features from a camera so that's been my solution for a long time i've had a load of scripts to kind of that i run if it's too dark or if it's too bright or if i've unplugged the webcam and i don't know why this has been important to me because otherwise i look like i'm in complete dark and also there's an awful lot of background noise however this is the best possible solution camera ctrls so it provides all the same functionality as v4l to hyphen ctl and there's a command line option that will basically map all those set and get features but there are two guis for it one using tickle for probably for you joe um, <laughs> and and another one using you know a modern modern gnome interface <laughs> what do i get then <laughs> actually the gnome one looks great on kde so I'm using i don't care i'm not using <laughs> cli it is <laughs> and I, I really like this about uh, the the GNOME window manager is that it puts actual things in the title bar of a window. And this has got the preview option to see the webcam output. So you can tweak the settings while you're in a meeting. You can see the output using this app. It exposes everything it can grab. But there are a few proprietary webcams that have extra features that you can only get at with some crappy Windows 
configuration panel. There's a couple of Logitech webcams that do this. They probably all do. My webcam, which I don't really want to give a shout out for it, but it does work really well with Linux. It's I think it's a, a Razer Keo Pro. And this one has HDR, which is pretty good for when you've got you sit in the dark. Um, it's also got pan and tilt because it's got a wide angle lens. And no, so before I couldn't access any of those features from Linux because they weren't exposed as part of the USB video class standard, whatever. Oh wow! Camera CTRLS has support for some of those webcams. That webcam, some of the Logitech webcams via the GUI lets you change all the settings, lets you save them to the camera, lets you save them to System D so that they're not lost, and lets you tweak all of this while you might be in a video meeting. And it's it's for people who just like staring at their own face when they're in meetings. It's just the perfect mirror, basically. <laughs> And this is just Python then? Yeah, it's a really good Python project as well. You just run, you, you basically clone the GitHub repo and run the script. I've just done exactly that. I just cloned it and ran it and I didn't have to do anything else. It just worked. And it's a nice UI, I think, as well. If you look at it, I, I really like the way it's been done. It's brilliant. I've got a Logitech Brio, so I wonder if that would unlock more features of it because I've heard it's like this amazing camera, the, uh, the Brio 4K. I don't really want to advertise it, but... Uh, I got it for free from Wimpress. He just uh, donated it to me because I had this, the worst webcam in the world. Yeah, we all know. Before. We've seen it. And, mm. uh, it looks fine, but it's, it doesn't look like all 4K and like super sharp. So maybe I need something like this to unlock it. It actually lists the Brio, says it unlocks the LED mode, LED frequency, and the field of view settings. So it sounds like it's got a wide angle lens as well. Right. Sounds like you've all got way better cameras than I do. <laughs> Well, I've just upgraded mine from like to that one, which I bought secondhand off eBay, you know, from some HP one, which really I'd had since 2007, and it was becoming a real embarrassment. Have you made a snap of it yet, Graham? <laughs> oh, God, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is on FlatHub, so uh, maybe you could just do what they normally do and just unpack that and stick that in a snap. <laughs> Give them a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> I've just discovered that my webcam has the ability to flash the LED on the front of it when it's recording. Very cool. I hope you haven't all changed audio channel now that you've plugged on your cameras <laughs> in. I was about to, and I thought, oh, shit, no, I better not. Yeah, I must say that has crossed my mind. So uh, if you're listening to this, I suppose they didn't. And uh, they didn't get shouted at, so all's well. Let me just tap my mic. <laughs> you sound fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have discovered that Postmarket OS runs really well on a Samsung Galaxy S3 from 10 years ago. And by running, I don't mean just a token effort. I'm talking about a 6.0 kernel running on this phone, running Fosh, which is kind of the Gnome phone interface. And uh, it's really, really impressive. It's up there with any experience I've ever had with a proper Linux phone. And this is on the S3 that listener McPhail sent me, so thanks for that. And I don't know why I decided to try this, but I just was thinking about Postmarket OS, and I thought, oh, yeah, I've got a phone that I think is supported, looked it up, still is. And uh, I expected it to be a bit of a shit experience because it's such an old phone, but it was actually really surprising. Booting off the SD card rather than the internal storage. And um, it was just a pleasant experience. It was a bit of a piss about to get Wi-Fi working, but the wiki was pretty detailed there. It said, if you've got a UK one, then you might have to copy this config file from Lineage. And so I did, and it was all working after that. And um, it's just so impressive to me that you've got a proper Linux machine on a 10-year-old phone. 
just that whole project to keep phones going that long is so impressive to me. Not to be a stickler, but um, I'm looking at the features list here and uh, GPS, mobile data, SMS and calls are all broken. Nobody uses them. <laughs> Nobody uses those. I never leave the house anyway. Oh, so okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously as an actual phone, it's nowhere near ready. I mean, no Linux experience is beyond Android, if you want to call that Linux as far as I'm concerned. And that might piss some people off and they might write to us and say, well, I use this phone as a daily driver running proper GNU slash Linux. Well, good for you. But for the majority of us, it's just not good enough. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it as a curiosity almost. And um, it really is quite a good experience. And because it's Alpine under the hood, I've been learning a little bit about the APK package manager, and that's also quite interesting as well. It's very easy. It's just APK update and APK upgrade and APK add to install something, and it's proper Linux on a phone. And you can buy these phones so cheap on eBay, like 20 or 30 quid for a bit of a beaten up old one. So if you're looking for something to tinker with, I think you could do worse than an S3. And it was a very popular phone that is now so old that most people don't want to use it. But it's still a decent phone. And, you know, it's got the SD card and removable back, removable battery as well. I mean, battery life is pretty shit as well. I must admit that. So it's it, it's only fun for tinkering with, but it's uh, it's still impressive nonetheless. Is this easy to get going because Samsung didn't lock the phone down like they do now, or is it just because the post-market people have done all the hard work? I think a bit of both. I think that the S3, it was never quite as open as the Nexus phones of the era, but it was relatively open compared to now, definitely, yeah. I used to have one until I dropped it on holidays on the first day and it smashed the screen. <laughs> and what about this video out option? I read about it having a dock, so that sounds like it could be fun. Well, I tried that briefly and nothing happened. I didn't really have time to uh, try it extensively. Maybe I should do, but uh, just plugging it in, nothing happened. So that's probably just user error. It'd be a cool trick if you can get it working. Yeah, yeah, I should definitely uh, give that a proper go. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed and the odd episode a bit earlier than the public feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. The GNOME project is closing all of its mailing lists, or pretty much has at this point, and is moving to Discourse, 
which you can interact with via email. So is this a big deal? Is it just a sign of the times? I mean, mailing lists are just a nightmare to deal with. And it just feels like moving with the times to me. Yeah, I agree. When I first read this, I felt a little bit um, surprised uh, when Canonical closed a load of mailing lists and moved to Discourse. There was uproar, and I'm sure there's been uproar about this as well. But the the end result is that it's much easier to interact with Discourse, to share screenshots, to post code in a correctly formatted manner. It can be search friendly and it, you know help you find things on Google or whatever your search engine is. I think it's just a sign of the times. It's the way things are going. And as they point out in the linked article on the register, Mailman is sitting on top of Python 2, which is end of life. So you know for that reason alone, I think it makes sense to shut it down. Well, the Mailman version that GNOME seem to be using is Python 2 because that's one of the excuses. There are more modern versions of Mailman that do use Python 3. But as we all know, upgrading infrastructure can be a bit of a nightmare sometimes. And at some point, you just have to pull the plug and say, look, fuck this. I was listening to Neil Gomper. He was saying that overall communication in GNOME development land has actually gone down. So I don't know whether this is actually a good sign or a good thing at all. And also, this is this is a forum and... Honestly, fuck forums. I hate them so much. <laughs> well, it is a forum, but it isn't. It's kind of much more of a modern take on a forum discourse. I always have to get that right and not say Discord name clash there. But it's, you know, it, it's got some forum stuff. It's got some more kind of modern social media type things as well. It seems to be the best of both worlds to me. And it seems to be working out nicely for the Ubuntu project. Yeah. And I spend quite a bit of time and discourse. Uh, at Ubuntu and also quite a few of the projects that I follow have done the same thing. And it's not ideal. It does take up a lot of resources and it's a bit unwieldy, the UI. Um, but at the same time, it does allow you to come back and catch up on posts you've missed. It does allow you to kind of interact almost in real time if you want to with people. And it kind of combines the best of mailing lists with the web. So I think it's the right thing to do. I, I love mailing this too. I can't tell you how many hours I've put into putting filters in my email clients to be able to push it onto the right place. But mailing lists are difficult to reply to, difficult to reply to the right place, difficult to subscribe to, difficult to kind of categorize and maintain. So I think it's the right decision too. But I do love that thing with a, a forum where somebody tells you to do something at post five and then at post 38, they will, oh, dear God, don't do that. It'll format the firmware in your machine. Yeah, and that's where a wiki can be much more valuable. I know, but the amount of knowledge that is buried across the internet in forums all over the place, they are horrific and they should all be burnt. Right, but is a mailing list really any better than a forum for that problem? I don't think so. I think that having a forum, deciding what it's going to be, and then having a linked wiki page that you then update, that is surely the way to solve this problem. I'm not a massive fan of mailing lists, but at least they don't expect immediate response. That's the only thing about them. Whereas with a lot of modern takes on things, People post them and they expect you to reply immediately and I would not like to be the developer on the receiving end of all that stuff. Yeah, but the same could be said for IRC or email. Some people demand a reply to an email immediately. That's not a technology problem, that's a people problem. And also in discourse, you can kind of mark one of the comments as being the solution. Does it bump it up the way Stack Exchange does? Yes, it does, and it bumps it up in the searches. No, okay, fair enough. It bumps it right up to underneath the post. It does seem to be a really good solution to forums. It's it's the best take I've ever seen on forums. I guess. 
I mean, if you take the worst possible thing on the web, I guess it can only get marginally better. <laughs> Let's do some feedback then. Sam wrote in to say, I want to bring some attention to the unexpected 2022 king of distributions for me. Do you want a rolling distro, up-to-date, well-curated packages, excellent support for everything you can imagine, root on ZFS, NVIDIA, Linux Surface devices, Snap, Flatpak, just name it. A rock-stable OS, a plethora of packages, an OS usable by regular users. Well, time for Debian testing. Seriously, latest GNOME and KDE, nice fonts, Snap, Flatpak, apt and app image all work well etc you should revisit it and report it on the show it really is that good more people need to know if i recall you had debian testing on a pi that you let open to the world with no, its no, flight it, was end, didn't you? it was raspbian that i left open to the world and now it's debian testing i and i don't think you were very happy with it uh no i think um it's, it's all right I, it's settled down quite nicely i had one problem with a new version of NUT, the UPS management software, and I had to revert that back to the previous version, but I just pinned the app and that fixed it. Everything else has been pretty good. Brand new Bluesy, brand new, you know, everything else. Uh, I say brand new, it's probably a few weeks old, a few months old, something like that. So far, it's been reliable. I have been a little bit cautious with upgrading stuff because if it breaks, then that's my DNS server, my DHCP server hosed, and I can't be bothered dealing with that. So I've been a little bit careful, but overall, I'm pretty happy with it. And this is on the uh, the Raspberry Pi on the uh, ARM64 images as well. So, you know, extra testing. Um, it's been pretty good. Will I use it on the desktop, though? That's the real question. Hmm. Uh, yes, I think I, I think I could do that. I could, I could test it. Your Honor, I submit these two messages in our private Telegram chat <laughs> as Exhibit A. I'm kind of getting annoyed at Debian testing now. Debian te stable was too old of a lot of stuff. Debian testing is way better, but stuff keeps happening. Also, can't get Bluetooth not to crash every five minutes. Thinking about moving back to Raspbian. Doesn't sound like a happy customer to me. But this <laughs> is the joy of Debian testing. You have proven my point. Ha ha. What do you say about that? Because now uh, Bluesy is more up to date and isn't crashing all the time. Well, yeah, until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, you. No, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I would stick with Ubuntu on the desktop, I think, but I could be tempted. If what you want is new packages and you don't want to have to wait for the next Ubuntu release or the next Ice Age for Debian, then you should definitely give it a go. What if you took Debian testing and just like about every six months snapshot <laughs> it and then polished it up? And then released it. Would it be like for humans and stuff? <laughs> I think it could work, lads. Give it a go. I might give this a go at some point, but uh, I'm just too happy with Ubuntu LTS. It just, I don't need new shit. It's fine. I think that's quite an interesting question in its own right. Like, is Linux now so good, so stable, or rather good enough that people don't need to be upgrading all the time? They don't need the latest features. That everything is that you need is just there and you don't have to keep upgrading. We should talk about that some more another time. We should do, but my answer to that is I think we were there five or ten years ago. Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. First one, Jonathan-esque riddles report from Prague. Yeah, both him and Scarlett were there. Just going through things like Snaps, they've got 100 so far in the Snap store. Uh, the Calamari's installer, Harold was talking about Neon and Plasma, Alice was talking about the community. And there's a Zimbabwean dev who was also talking about, well, I, I called it this donkey net as opposed to sneaker net, where 
we think a country's getting a fiber connection. Well, if you're inland, tough shit. And it was quite cool. Apparently the talk where they're going on about how they had to get the data back and forth in such a manual way. So yeah, something to think about when you're dropping that TIFF into your installer. <laughs> All right. Push notifications for KDE. Yeah. So uh, this is quite an interesting discussion, I guess when they're trying to get better for things like the phone, etc., they want to make sure they have push notifications, talk about how most of the services are proprietary. You've got to run your own cloud to run it. But there's things like unified push and then using services like NTFY or Notify, I don't know how it's pronounced, and Next Push, and whether KD should run their own version of that and various libraries and daemons required to run against it. That actual package, uh, Nifty or Notify, whatever it's called, Quite cool. I've tried that. Very simple and uh, quite a nice way to get notifications. I may discover that at some point in the future. Ah. All right. And NeoChat end-to-end encryption. Just progress is going on this. This is using the matrix end-to-end encryption stuff and how they're developing it into using Libom to do all the cryptographic stuff. They've got then their own library to to link that to the protocol. And then they, at the moment, they have device verification where you can use emojis in particular orders as a way to do it, which I guess is certainly a way to do it. And yeah, so that work progresses. All right. And one of Nate's classic updates then. Yeah, obviously loads of bug fixes and new features, stuff like that. But for people with NVIDIA GPUs, Plasma 527 is going to be able to talk to that much better so you get better monitoring out of that in the system resources. And Discovery's got a whole load of more fixes to their error messages and things like that. And Nate wrote, for his goal, he has written a new Welcome to KDE page on the wiki, and it's going to be integrated into a new Welcome Center app, which I thought was a nice feature, which everybody has clearly had for ages and KD could do with. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when, honestly, who knows what we'll be talking about. We're getting into uh, the festive season now, so there might not be that much news, but uh, we'll see. But until then, I've been Joe. And I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.